this metaphor of a serpent or a snake is typical of the description of the kingdom of evil. And so here we see this man, Goliath, standing up, clad completely in this armor that's fashioned to look like a snake. Luke chapter 24, verses 25 through 27, Jesus hears, of course, on the way to Emmaus, on the road to Emmaus, after that three days in the tomb and the resurrection, and as he is walking along with these poor, downhearted disciples, he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In John chapter 5, Jesus says to the Pharisees who are attacking him, He says, you search the scriptures, and by the scriptures, he means what we would call our Old Testament. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that witness about me. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. So the question we start with is, are we going to take the words of Christ seriously? When he says to us that all of the scriptures are about him, will we take him at his word? Will we truly believe what he says when he says to us that all of the scriptures are about him? And if they are all about him, indeed, how can we see him in all of the scriptures? How can we open our Old Testaments and see him in passages that are not those passages about the prophecies of the Messiah that is to come, or perhaps the passages that tell us of of our need for a Messiah to come and fulfill the law on our behalf? How are we to see him in the vast pages of our Old Testament if he says to us, indeed, that all of these scriptures are about him? B.B. Warfield wrote that the Bible is like a house of treasures, And you enter into this house of treasures and you find in each room that the treasures are there abundantly in every room. And the treasures that you find in this house that he is metaphorically speaking of the Bible, the treasure that you find is Christ. But he says when you go to the room that is the Old Testament, you find that that room is also filled with the treasure that is Christ. But that room is, he says, dimly lit. Isn't that beautiful? That the Old Testament room containing the treasures of Christ is a room dimly lit. Now, how do you see in a dimly lit room? Well, you see in a dimly lit room, first of all, by looking, staring, looking intently. But you really see in a dimly lit lit room by bringing a light, shining a light. And what is our light? Our light is Psalm 119. Thy word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. So the scriptures are the best way for teaching us how to see Jesus in the scriptures themselves, specifically the Old Testament. So we are blessed because Jesus himself 
taught us how it is that we can see him in the narrative sections of our Old Testament. He himself teaches us this in places like, for example, Matthew chapter 12. If you recall in Matthew chapter 12, when the Pharisees come to him and they demand a sign from him, show us a sign that we might believe in you. And he says, I'm not here to do tricks for you. So no sign will be given except the sign of, do you remember? Jonah. For just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, so also will the Son of Man be in the earth, in the grave, three days and three nights. So in saying those words, Jesus taught us an important principle of how it is that we see him in the pages of Scripture. Because Jesus took an actual event, the event of the prophet Jonah being in the belly of the fish for three days. He took that event and he said, you can understand that event in the sense that it points to something in my life that has a parallel, that has a corresponding point of connection. And so Jesus taught us that method of looking to the Old Testament stories and seeing something about him, something in the Old Testament characters that could point us to Christ or something in the events or the happenings, the circumstances that we can say, this points us to Christ in this way or in that way. Incompletely, yes. Sinfully, yes. In ways that are greatly lacking, yes. But nevertheless, Jesus himself taught us to expect our Old Testaments to bring to mind, to recall to our thoughts, things about him himself. So as we read through our Old Testaments and we begin to, I guess, become practiced or skilled at looking for Jesus in this way, then we can begin to see him everywhere. And suddenly the pages of our Old Testament will become alive to us, will leap off the page with us with new significance and new meaning as those familiar old stories will teach us and show us something that turns our thoughts to Messiah. And so we come away from our scriptures now thinking that in reality, if we if we read in our scriptures and we close our, our Bible and we haven't thought of Jesus, then we read our scriptures wrongly because he told us that they're all about him. So when we turn to these familiar old stories and we begin to see things in the characters and the events that point us to Christ, we're reminded of, of so many instances that point us to Jesus. Like in the life of Abraham, for example, as Abraham was called to go up the mountain and sacrifice his only son. Or Moses, who went up the mountain and received the law for the people and gave the law to the people. That points us to Jesus, who also went up on a mountain and preached a sermon that gave the law to the people. Or Moses, who would be the one that would go into the tent of meeting on behalf of the people and meet with God in their place which teaches us of our mediator, the, the man Christ Jesus, who mediates on our behalf. Or we think of other, other stories such as, well, the kinsman redeemer, Boaz, in the story of Ruth, that teaches us of our kinsman redeemer. Or the, uh, as Jesus mentioned, the prophet Jonah, the three days in the belly of the fish, but also other events in Jonah's life. as He, he was the prophet who was commanded, called by God to go to his enemies and proclaim the good news of forgiveness and salvation. So also Jesus was sent to his enemies to proclaim the good news of salvation. As Jonah was the prophet who fell asleep in the boat during the storm, so also was Jesus the man who fell asleep in the boat during the storm and other things as well. Or we think of, uh, we think of others in the scriptures like Solomon who was 
called the man of wisdom, the man who possessed the greatest wisdom of all, which points us to Christ, who we are told is our wisdom. Or others such as Samson. We think of Samson, who was the man who was endowed with great strength when the Spirit of God came upon him and his, and his enemies could not prevail over him when the Spirit came over him. Which points us to Jesus, as we're told in Luke 4. The Spirit comes upon Jesus in the same, in a similar fashion, and his enemies have no power over him. Or Samson, the one who defeated and killed his enemies by his own death. You remember as he pushed the pillars apart and the building fell down upon he and the Philistines, killing him and the Philistines as well. By his death, he defeated his enemies. He killed his enemies by his own death as Christ defeated his enemies by his own death. And so many other places. The Scriptures will begin to come alive when we begin to think about what about this man or this woman or this situation or this this problem or this conflict. What about this points us to Christ? So tonight we turn to what I think we could rightly call the most famous story in all of Scripture, the story of David and Goliath. I think last night I said that we were going to go to Nebuchadnezzar. Not Nehemiah. What's the fellow's name? Maybe you need to preach tomorrow night since I can't remember his name. Nicodemus. But we'll save Nicodemus for tomorrow night. And maybe by tomorrow night I'll remember what his name is. But tonight we'll go to probably the most well-known, globally recognized story of all the scriptures, the story of David and Goliath. And I hope this doesn't sound arrogant or conceited or anything like that, because that's not how I want to sound. But I find that this is not only the most famous story in all the scriptures, I also find that this is the most misunderstood story in all of scripture, because We've all heard this story presented in ways like if you just trust God like David trusted God, then he wants you to defeat the giants in your life as well. And those giants in your life might be the giant of the, the angry boss that doesn't treat you fairly or the giant of, of uh, uh, the, uh, the spouse whom you're having marital troubles with or the giant uh, that faces you at work or whatever it may be. We've all heard those and similar things. We've all heard that, that God wants us to be like David's and you've heard the call, be like David and step out and watch God slay your giants as well. And does God defeat the giants of our life? Absolutely, sometimes that fits His will and certainly He can. But it is a misuse of the Scriptures to say that that's the point of this story. It's not even the secondary point of this story. In fact, the point of this story is far deeper and far more significant because in this story, we see a picture of Christ that I think far surpasses even the other pictures of Christ that we see in our Old Testaments because the main character of the story is the Old Testament's premier foreshadowing of Christ. The Old Testament has a number of characters that are a type of Christ, that are a foreshadowing of Christ. Abraham in his faith as Jesus was the man of perfect faith. Moses, as we said, as the lawgiver, as the mediator. Uh, Moses as the rescuer of his people as he brings them out of slavery. Or uh, Joshua as he is the commander of the army of the Lord. Or uh, Gideon. Or as we said, Samson. Or many, many others. Samuel was a foretype. It was a, was a uh, forerunner of Christ. But none was a forerunner of Christ. None was a type of Christ like David was a type of Christ. David, who was the first king of Israel, 
the first true and real king of Israel, points us to the king of Israel. David, whom would receive from God the Davidic covenant in which God said to him, one of your descendants will sit on the throne of David forever. And so then we come to our New Testaments and we find that Jesus is rightly called the son of David. Even the very first sentence of our New Testaments, the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. So we find him referred to as the son of David by those who are declaring his birth. But then we also, at the very end of the the story of the Gospels, as he enters into the holy city for that final week of his life, even then they're still proclaiming him to be the son of David. Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed be the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed be the coming son of David. So this title, Son of David, clues us into the fact that there's something about David. In fact, there's a lot of things about David that we are to see in him a type of Christ or something that points us to the Christ who is to come. And so we could look at David as the suffering king. He was the king who who was the, the suffering king. We could look at him as the one who we're told has the heart for God in so many other ways. We could really tonight start at the beginning of the story of David and begin to see in every event of David's life, we could see being pointed to Christ. But we don't obviously have the time for that. So instead, we will skip forward and we will start here at 1 Samuel 17. So if you want to turn to that, we'll we'll be in 1 Samuel 17 for the rest of the evening. And we'll look at this most famous of stories. Now the message tonight has but one point. Sometimes messages, sermons will have multiple points of application. And that's wonderful. I, I love hearing messages that give me some meaty, practical things to do that I might put into place for my prayer life or for my scripture intake, for my scripture memorization, or, or in, in how I might forgive others, or, or whatever the case may be. So I love and appreciate those messages that give us some sort of meaty application. This is not one. In fact, this message has one application and one application only. And it's simply this. The point of this message is simply look to Jesus. Just look to Christ. Just look and see him. Just see the Messiah and adore him and worship him and love him and know him. That's the only point that we have tonight is just simply look to Jesus. So 1 Samuel 17, the story of the great conflict, one of the many great conflicts of the Old Testament, these conflicts between good and evil. 1 Samuel 17 and the conflict between David and Goliath, really, we need to start out by understanding that this is not so much a conflict between two people. We shouldn't see it as a conflict between David and Goliath. We really should see it as a conflict between the gods of David and the God of, or the God of David and the gods of Goliath. Because that's really what it is. It's the conflict of their gods. Much like the the plagues, remember the plagues and the the exodus and all that, how that was the conflict between the living God and the gods of Egypt, or the conquest of the land, how that was a conflict between the living God and the gods of the Canaanites. Well, in the same way, the conflict between David and Goliath is really a conflict between the gods of Goliath and the living God of David. And Goliath and David are both presented for us in the story as representatives of their God in such a way that their gods are battling it out by means of their representatives, 
David and Goliath. So with that in mind, let's just jump into the story from verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle, and they were gathered at Sokah, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Sokah and Azekah in Ephes Damim. And then Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in a line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side in a valley between them. So in my mind, I'm just picturing these two hillsides and a valley in between. Maybe it was a dry wadi or maybe there was a stream down there at the, at the bottom. But across this hillside, the two armies see each other and can probably hear each other. They can hear each other's activities and they can probably shout to one another. In fact, the story is going to tell us of some shouting that takes place that's heard on the other side. That's the, the, the picture that I have in mind. So now verse 4. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion. So here that word champion begins to remind me, well, there is a champion in Scripture, and the champion of our salvation is Christ. But here's another champion. This other champion is by the name Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. And the weight of the coat was about 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had a bronze armor on his legs, and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. So here we see the word bronze over and over and over, and we're just given this picture of this man who is clad. Not only is he so big and tall, the, 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 the aspect of his size that's emphasized is his height. But not only is he so tall and so big, but we're just told over and over again of the size of his armor and this bronze and the weight of iron. And that reminds us, of course, that we know that the Israelites were at an extreme disadvantage to the Philistines. The Philistines were the the ancient kingdom, the ancient civilization that was the most advanced in metalworking and metal alloys and metalworking. And we remember a little bit later in the story as as the uh, Israelites, they become oppressed by the Philistines. And part of the oppression is that they take away all their axe heads and all their metal plowshares. And they had to go to the Philistines in order to have those sharpened and everything. And so the Israelites were at an extreme disadvantage because their weapons were still wooden and rocks and that sort of thing. And so over and over again, we're just given the picture of earthly superiority, earthly strength, earthly might in, by, by way of all of this armor. Now, let's look once again at verse 5. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. Do you know what a coat of mail is? Well, a coat of mail is, is a garment, is a, an outer garment that's made from all those little links of metal woven together. Now, a coat of mail wasn't invented yet. That won't be invented for a number of centuries, and it won't be invented in this part of the world. So we have a a bit of a translation struggle. Goliath wasn't wearing necessarily this coat of mail. The, The metal technology of that time was more like a breastplate. But the word there that's translated mail also means scales. And so I think that's a much more accurate translation because... The picture that we're being shown is of armor of scales, armor that is fashioned to look like scales. You see, the Bible has a theme, and it's the theme of the serpent. And that theme starts way back in Genesis when the serpent comes to tempt the woman. And so the serpent becomes the animal 
that is the metaphor for the kingdom of evil. And that, that metaphor for the serpent, even though we're not saying that the serpent that came to Eve was an actual metaphor, it was a real serpent. But the serpent becomes a metaphor that the prophets pick up on Isaiah, Ezekiel. They'll pick up on the metaphor of the serpent and they'll carry that through. With more time tonight, we could look at many instances that our Old Testament uses serpent or snake as a metaphor for the kingdom of evil or the power of evil. And that metaphor is continued all the way through to the last book of our Bibles when we read about the dragon, the dragon which is the serpent with wings. And so this metaphor of a serpent or a snake is typical of the description of the kingdom of evil. And so here we see this man, Goliath, standing up, clad completely in this armor that's fashioned to look like a snake with a uh, a helmet on his head that's fashioned to look like a snake head. So he is not only the metaphorical representative of the kingdom of evil, he is visually the representative of the kingdom of evil.